We're going to turn back now again to Hosea chapter four, to the passage that Mike read to us. You will really find it very helpful to have Hosea four, five and six in front of you, as I'm going to point you to various verses in those chapters. I used to attend a church where the minister was responsible for organising people from other countries who would come once a year across to a minister's conference here in the UK. And that gave a bit of a bonus to us as a church, because after the conference, he would often get those visiting ministers who came particularly from Africa, mainly from Africa, but from various parts of the world. He'd get them to come and preach at our church. And so we would hear the same gospel that we were used to, but put by people with different personalities from very different cultures with quite different experiences. And so they would put the same truths in fresh ways. Although I do remember one evening when we had five speakers lined up and the first one spoke for well over an hour and we wondered how long we'd be by the time we heard the fifth speaker. But usually it was something very fresh to us. And Hosea can do something similar for us. He tells us the same gospel that we're used to from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the tightly knit logic of Paul. But he doesn't write anything like Paul. No, he's got a very different personality. He's from a very different culture. He's from 760 years B.C. And hearing from him can help us take familiar truths and have them impact us, I hope, afresh, because we're hearing a fresh voice on them. Now, we've already over the last few weeks heard from Hosea's, Hosea chapters one to three. There it pictures God and Israel as husband and wife. And there it pictures Israel as this adulterous wife cheating on God. And chapters one to three told us about God's anger with his wife. He is a jealous God in the good sense of jealousy. But those chapters also told us of him still loving his wife and he will go and seek his wife back and win her love for him again. And chapters one to three really are the theme for the whole book of Hosea. So there I've given away to you that the rest of this series and by the way, we won't do every single chapter, I doubt, but the rest of the series will be really the same theme because chapters one to three give the theme of the whole book. And the rest is really more detail on that same issue. So I want us this evening to learn some of the detail we get from chapter four through to chapter six, verse three. That seems to fit together as one section. There's a lot there we'll have to miss out because it's very rich. But I wanted to get to chapter six, verse three. So we get from the bad news to the good news. We're not going to cover all of it, but we're going to take it in three sections with three headings. And so the first is God's case against his wife. This is chapter four through to chapter five, verse seven. We have God's case against his wife. Chapter four starts with a courtroom scene. God has gone to the marriage court. And he is making his case against his wife. He is giving the case he has for why he could divorce her. Verse one. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. 
There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's the case that God makes in this marriage court, and he has three accusations against his wife. Did you spot the three? Children, I hope you're listening this evening. Three accusations. The clue is it says no three times. The first is no faithfulness. His wife has not kept her marriage vows. She's not been faithful to those vows. In other words, Israel has not kept the covenant, that Solomon agreement. I will be your God and you will be my people. They've not kept it. Instead of looking to the Lord to provide, they've looked to other gods to provide. Here's the second accusation. No love. It's actually that rich Old Testament word usually to describe God of steadfast love, of loving faithfulness. In other words, here where it's about Israel, it's saying there's there's this lack of commitment and lack of affection. That's a disastrous marriage where there's a lack of commitment and of affection. And then thirdly, there's no acknowledgement of God. This wife does not recognize God as her husband. She doesn't recognize her obligations as a wife to him. She's treated the Lord as just one of so many men that she she'll pick and choose which one she wants. In other words, she's been more like a prostitute than a wife. And that's a theme we find throughout Hosea. In fact, Hosea even has to marry a prostitute to symbolize what Israel has been like. There are the accusations. It's a broken marriage and a broken marriage results in a broken family. Verse two. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse one describes attitude to God. And then verse two quickly follows with how they're treating each other. And what it shows is not loving God results in not loving your neighbor. If you'll be unfaithful to God, you'll be unfaithful to your neighbor. If your attitude to God is me first, well, you will say me first to anyone else who gets in your way or who impinges on your plans for me first. I wonder if anyone's thinking of a a New Testament chapter this might make you think of. It makes me think of Romans one. Romans one puts it this way. It says godlessness leads to wickedness. Sin against God leads to sin against others. In Hosea language, the broken marriage leads to a broken family. And that leads to a broken home. I wonder if there are any teenagers listening to us who have a paper round. Uh, I suppose there aren't so many these days because not so many people buy papers. But when I was a teenager, it was quite a common money earner having a paper round. And I had a paper round in my local area where I lived. And there in that area, as I did my paper round, I noticed most of the houses were neat. But some, they, I was delivering the free paper. Some of these houses 
who received the free paper. I don't think they had enough money for a paid for paper. They had broken windows and graffiti on the walls and piles of litter and beer cans outside. And coming out of the house, I would hear screaming and shouting. There were some of the houses in, in my area looked in a terrible state. In later years, I, when I grew up, got to know the head of the local school there. He'd moved from a school in London, but he said, I've not come across before an area with so many broken marriages. And the broken marriages lead to broken families. Not always, but often lead to broken homes. And it's the same here in verse three. Let's move on to verse three. Because of this, notice because of this, the land mourns and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. You see, God's marriage covenant included giving them a wonderful family home, the promised land of Israel. And he promised it would be a wonderful land flowing with milk and honey on condition of keeping the covenant. But because they've broken their marriage covenant, the family is broken and the home is getting broken, too. Now, with a broken marriage, a broken family and a broken home, they needed someone to mend things. And the people who should have mended things were the priests. But the priests were broken, too. This is verses four to nine. The priests should have rebuked the people and brought them back to God, but they were failing to. Verse four, by the way, it's rather difficult to translate and it seems rather strange to us. It probably is something like now you priests who are accusing people and feeling superior, you're just as guilty, too. You fall under the same accusation. Those of you on the ball might think, well, if the first verses were Romans one, this is more like Romans two. And these verses tell us the priests were just in it for the status, in it for the money, not for love of God. They had rejected the knowledge of God. And so God rejected them. Verse nine. No, sorry, I mean, verse six. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. God treats them as they've treated him. And the key phrase here in this section is in verse nine. And it will be like people, like priests. They were like each other, cheating on God. The people cheated on God and the priests instead of rebuking them, gave them a bit of religion that made them feel better, but didn't challenge them, didn't deal with their sins. They got a cozy arrangement here. We'll sin and the priests won't rebuke us. They'll make us feel better. Sadly, I suspect a lot of church leaders are like that, and we must make sure that doesn't happen here. A cozy arrangement that allows us to turn a blind eye to our sin. But like people, like priests has another edge to it. Verse nine. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways. And so we get the results of that in verses 10 to 19. 
Verses 10 to 19, the results are, I'll just summarise for you. God will give them up to their sin and their sin won't satisfy them. God will give them up to their sin and that sin won't satisfy them. Now, do you remember the idol that they were worshipping? Well, there were many, but the particular one that they mainly worshipped was called, well, I've always called him Baal. I'm told it's better pronounced Baal. Baal. How would they worship this idol Baal? Well, they had feasts that they ate at his shrine and his shrine had prostitutes that the men used. And the idea was that them eating these feasts and using these prostitutes stimulated Baal to make their fields fertile and their wives fertile. And verse 10 is saying, no, it's not going to work. Do you see verse 10? Once you know that context, verse 10 may be more understandable. They will eat, but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not increase because they have deserted the Lord. It won't work. And so they are made foolish. Verse 12. (laughs) They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. This is not politically correct, but the Bible mocks idolatry. The Bible mocks the foolishness of false religion or of putting your trust in something else other than God. Well, there's the picture Hosea 4 is giving. I hope you've got the picture. It starts off in the law court. It moves beyond the law court. But what's it a picture of? Well, obviously, it's of Israel in Hosea's day. This is real history. But it's also a picture of humanity. All mankind. Does it ring any bells to you? It's actually very much like Genesis 3. Do you remember there in Genesis 3, the relationship between Adam and God is broken and it results in a breakage in the relationship between Adam and Eve and between Cain and Abel and between people ever since. The breakage between God and man results in a breakage in other relationships. There in Genesis 3, the broken relationship with God breaks the family home God had put them in. Broken marriage, broken relationship, broken home. As I've already said, Hosea 4 is very much like Romans 1. People not acknowledging God leads to people acting wickedly, leads to God giving them over to sin, leads to the foolishness of people living in a self-destructive way, leads to, Romans 8 says, creation groaning, the world broken. Interestingly, the... um, Romans 8, creation groans, uses the same word as Hosea 4, the land mourns. And that tells us Hosea 4 is all around us. It isn't just this strange prophet 2,760 years ago. It's all around us still today because it's mankind. And that tells us the gospel is so needed. Do we need a COVID-19 vaccine? Yes, we do. And we're glad, I hope, that there's an awful lot of effort going into finding one. But we so much more need the gospel. And there ought to be more effort going into getting that out. 
getting the gospel to a world that's like Hosea 4. And that also tells us Hosea 4 is us individually. In what way is it us individually? Well, if your trust is not in the Lord God, the father of Jesus Christ, if instead it's in yourself or your religion or your abilities or in humanity's general goodness, you're like Hosea 4. You should see yourself here. If your trust is in the Lord God, the father of Jesus Christ, then do remind yourself you were like Hosea 4. And you and I have got a lot of reason to be humbled and thankful because we were like that. Hosea 4 is also our society. I think we can say the UK in 2020 is particularly like Hosea 4. In past generations, and I'm not going to pretend they were perfect and everything was godly. It was far from that. But in past generations, what would happen in school assemblies? Those of you who are over, I suppose, 70, I'm sure you would know this. In past assemblies, there would be Bible reading. There would be singing hymns. Now, what is there in school assemblies, even next door? Learning the UN Declaration on the Rights of a Child. Or this week, the Duchess, was she the Duchess of, you know, Kate, who was Middleton? Duchess of Cambridge, Callum tells me, gave an assembly on kindness, which actually was an assembly on kindness without God. You see, our society has rejected acknowledging God, even though it was a very poor acknowledgement and often a very theoretical acknowledgement in the past. It's rejected acknowledging God and thinks it will build a better humanity without him. We can be kind without God. We can be kind through our rights of a child. And Hosea 4 is bad news for that plan. It says not acknowledging God doesn't lead to a better humanity. It leads to wickedness. It leads to breakdown in relationships. It leads to being given over to increasing sin. That is the direction our society is heading. We need God's mercy in a big way. Well, that was the biggest chunk. God's case against his wife. Let's move on to chapter five, verse eight to 15. Chapter five, verses eight to 15. We have God's reaction to his wife. Now, we've already started to hear his reaction because we've heard he gives her over to sin. But as well as that passive giving over, okay, go and do your thing. God has an active reaction. God's judgment is also active and it's described in unusual ways in Hosea 5 verses 8 to 15. Hosea loves vivid, unusual pictures and we have some here. If someone asked you what God is like, what would you say? There's a lot of answers you could give, but have a think of some of the things you'd say if asked, what is God like? Well, I wonder if you would say what Hosea does. Have a look what God is like. Verse 10, 12 and 14. I don't know if we can quickly unmute and hear if any. Let's say children first. Can you spot what it says God is like? I'm like a moth. Is that something we can do quickly? 
Oh, sounds like it. Yeah, everyone's unmuted. Okay, children, look at verse 10 and verse 12 and verse 14 and shout out if you can spot something it says God is like. And if we wait a long time for children, we'll start getting adults in. People would need to unmute themselves, so some people haven't unmuted. Okay. I don't know if this is going to work. I might have to tell you. Quite a few adults unmuted. Okay. Anyone going to tell us? Moth. A moth. There's one. Lion. A lion. Good. There's two more. Rot. Rot. And the next one is not so obvious because it doesn't say it directly, but it does say like. First ten. Flood of water. A flood of water. Thank you. Okay, David, let's mute everyone. Sorry if that seems really controlling, but it's just to do with background noise and clarity. Okay, so we have God is like a flood, verse 10. It's like a flood. Now, children, if you read Winnie the Pooh, a flood might sound quite fun, floating around in an upside down umbrella on top of a flood. But I can tell you a flood is not fun. It fills your houses with dirt. It wrecks things. It even sometimes kills people. And when Old Testament people heard the word flood, what would they think of? They think of that time God wiped out nearly all mankind with a flood, the time of Noah. And God says here to the unrepentant, he'll be like a flood, destructive. Then verse 12, would you ever say God is like a moth? Have you ever caught a moth in your hand? It's quite easy to catch a moth in your hand. And when you do, it falls apart. It's so weak. Obviously, God is not like a moth that way. It's more like this. A couple of years ago in our lounge, we moved some furniture and found all sorts of holes in the carpet. Disaster. What was it? A moth had been eating the carpet and it had, well, it, it couldn't be repaired. There, thankfully, it wasn't too widespread, but where it was, it had caused significant damage and moths cause destruction. And God says, I'm going to come in in a destroying way. Verse 12, he's like rot. That is obviously similar. People think their sin will make life better for them. This sin will make me happy. That sin will make me money. And God here is saying, I'm going to make sure your sin makes your life disintegrate. And then we have verse 14. God is like a lion. I recommend going to Woolerton Hall. I'm sure that many of you have been to Woolerton Hall. Great place to go, especially because it's free to get in, apart from the parking charge. And you go into that hall and there at the foot of one of the staircases is a stuffed lion. And you can get right up close and you can look at those claws and you can peer up and see the teeth and think to yourself, what would it be like to have those claws tear you? What would it be like to have those teeth bite you and rip a chunk of your flesh out? And in verse 14, that's what God says he'll do to Israel. And notice he emphasizes he will do it. Verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. 
I will tear them. In fact, I think the ESV picks up on this. It's emphatic. I, even I, will tear them. Now, the, what probably happened in practice was Assyria coming in and killing Israelites and ripping down their cities, tearing up their cities and tearing up people. But here God says, it's me. I'm behind it. God is like a flood. He is like a moth. He is like rot. He is like a lion. Do you need to change your ideas of God? Last Sunday morning, if you were listening in, as we were hearing about the cross of Jesus, we heard how the religious rulers at the cross of Jesus got their ideas of God wrong. Because they didn't let their expectations be challenged by the Bibles, by the Bible. They'd got their ideas and the Bible contradicted, but they ignored that it wasn't convenient. Don't be like them. If you get your diet mainly from popular Christian books, although there's a lot of good in them, you won't hear much about God's fierce judgment. But if you read through all the Bible, you will hear a lot. It's not just Hosea. You'll hear a lot about God's fierce judgment. Do you believe in this God as the Bible reveals him? These descriptions are here to warn you if you are not turning from your sin. Whether you are not a Christian or you are a Christian who's playing with sin and making excuses for it and refusing to let go of it. Or you are a Christian who's drifting away from God. Maybe you're even wondering about turning away from the faith. God warns you he won't be like a cuddly koala to you. He'll be like a lion. Now, to be honest, as I prepared this, I wondered if I should find something else to preach. I wondered if actually I've got the wrong idea going through Hosea because, well, I don't know about you, but I'm finding the news quite alarming and the situation in in our society quite depressing and worrying. I thought maybe I should find something else to give encouragement, but I haven't. Sorry if that disappoints you. Because we must let God set what the emphasis is. But also. I think even in our worries, it does help us to be reminded what God is like. In World War One and World War Two, many of the soldiers had been to Sunday school. People did back then, at least in the UK. Many of the soldiers had gone to Sunday school and they'd been taught an idea of God that was just sentimental. It was a God who was just sentimental love for everyone and judgment for no one. And those soldiers compared that with the horrors of war, compared that with what they experienced in the trenches. And it is no surprise they concluded that God isn't real. And many left the church and the faith. And so it's. It is a help to us to hear Hosea 4 and 5 tell us troubles and sufferings don't contradict the Bible's message of what God is like. Troubles and sufferings don't mean that God isn't there. He is there. He is behind them. And the question for us is, what is he teaching us? How does he want us to respond 
Well, let's move on now to how we should respond, because we thirdly and finally have God's appeal to his wife. We're going to move on to chapter six, verses one to three. We have God's appeal to his wife. Chapter six, verse one. Come, let us return to the Lord. Who is speaking? Well, it's Hosea, but it's Hosea as God's mouthpiece. He's appealing to God's wife to return to him. In other words, it's it's a call to repent. Now, what is the repentance God wants from us? We have here a great description of it. It's worth us looking through it. And it starts back in chapter five, verse 15. If you want to know what repentance is like, there it starts back in verse 15. Then I will go back to my place. This is God speaking until they admit their guilt and they will seek my face in their misery. They will earnestly seek me. Misery. Misery is not always a bad thing if it gets us thinking about our sin and our need of God. You might be remembering the prodigal son in his misery in the pigsty. It wasn't a bad thing. There was once a church that was proud and a church that thought it was better than the other churches locally and a church that thought, well, we've got. Well, they did have some sins, but they thought, no, they can't be sins because we are spiritual. Those things can't really be sins because we're a super spiritual church. We must be okay. And God made that church miserable. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9. Paul says, I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance for you became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what God, what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Do you get the feeling that they were really feeling this? Misery is not always a bad thing. The bad thing actually is if you can sin and not feel miserable about it. Then you've got reason to be worried that God's just leaving you alone. Uh, There was an American church leader at a time when God was doing amazing things, a powerful work. And this American church leader was called Jonathan Edwards. And he said, don't ignore or suppress any feelings of conviction of sin. Don't brush them aside because you don't like them. Don't push them away because you think, oh, no, Christians aren't supposed to feel guilty. Instead, face up to them and see, is this showing that there is a sin that I should be repenting of? And if there is, do chapter five, verse 15, admit your guilt. Do chapter five, verse 15, admit your guilt and then do. Well, what else does it say in that verse? Earnestly seek God's face or to put it in the words of chapter six, verse one, return to the Lord. 
You don't just admit your guilt and then despair. You admit your guilt and you take it to God for forgiveness and you earnestly seek him. And then do verse three. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Again, actually, a better translation would be let us know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. Press on to know him. Don't make that repentance just a once off thing. And then, oh, well, I've done it. Now God can go back into the background and I'll get on with my life. No, press on to know him better and better and better. And don't let this just be a religious formality. You see that from a slightly odd thing in chapter five. Let's go back into chapter five. If we compare verse four and verse six, we get something odd. Verse four, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. But then it says, verse six, when they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. So are they seeking God or are they not? Are they returning to the Lord or are they not? Well, the clue is verse six, when they go with their flocks and herds. It just means going to the temple to do the sacrifices. That's the flocks and herds. They're to be sacrificed. But they are still, verse seven, unfaithful. In other words, they're doing the religious ritual. They're doing the sacrifices. They're saying their prayers, but they're not letting go of their sins. Asking God for forgiveness, telling him you need him, turning up to church while keeping hold of your sin, making excuses and not letting go of it. That isn't repentance. However much you read your Bible, however much you pray, however much good you do, it's not repentance if you won't admit your guilt and let go of it. But they're not just told to do this repentance. No, it's not just that. Now, I meant to bring a coin with me, but I forgot. Callum, have you got a coin? No, he hasn't. Oh, well, you all know, don't you, that a coin has two sides and we call one side heads and the other side tails. Now, are the heads the same as the tails? No, they're not the same thing. Do you ever get heads without tails? Well, unless it's a very odd coin. No, you don't. They go together. And repentance and faith are like that. They are not the same thing. Repentance is not faith. But you never get repentance without faith. They go together. And so chapter six doesn't just call us to repent. It gives us reason for faith. It gives us reason to trust God as we return to him. Verse one, he has torn, but he will heal us. It's interesting if you compare chapter six with chapter four, chapter four, verses one to three was at your sin leads to the land being wrecked. Chapter six, verses one to three is if you repent, the land will be restored, refreshed. Verse three, instead of God coming like a flood that destroys, God will come like the sorts of rains we've had this past week that although they might annoy us, they make everything spring up fresh and green again. And as we repent, how can we be confident God will do this? How can we be confident he will heal us? He will refresh us. 
Well, the answer is because verses one and two have already happened. They are not just a future promise. They've happened. Have a look, especially at verse two and see, is there anything that rings a bell that sounds familiar in verse two? After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. Does that sound familiar? Abraham was promised a seed who would bring blessing to all the world, who would refresh the world. And in a sense, Israel was that seed. But we know Israel failed and it really looked ahead to one seed, Jesus. He was the true Israel. And so a day came 760 years after Hosea when the true Israel walked the land. But that true Israel was guilty in God's sight. Guilty more than anyone else ever. Guilty of all the sins of God's chosen people who were placed on him. And so God tore him on the cross. But he also bound him up. And on the third day, he restored him. So now he, verse two, lives in God's presence. And because the tearing was done for his people, so also the restoring and living in God's presence is for his people. And so all who are repentant can have confidence because verse two is true for Jesus. It will be true for you also. You are raised up. With Christ, you have God's presence. You can press on to know him and he will come to you like refreshing rain on parched ground. Well, Hosea lived in the Middle East 2,780 years ago. He married a prostitute. He said some strange and severe things. He seems to us rather odd. And yet he spoke the same gospel as Jesus Christ. So I hope this different way of putting it helps it hit home to you. I hope. Have you seen yourself? Are you there in chapter four? Have you seen what God is like? Have you seen what real repentance is like? And if you find in yourself any way that you have turned from God or are still turned from him, Will you repent in this way?